Today's going to be a blessing. Uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently as the sermon goes. We're going to tag team preach. So Jeff is going to kick us off. Uh, Ryan's going to bring the meat, and I'm going to put a nice little bow on it at the end. It's going to be a fun time. We hope you're blessed by it, um, and I know the Lord will be honored by everything we're doing together. I know we're joining together in worship. I can feel it even in this room. We're, we are distant. There's a great chasm between us, but nonetheless, the Lord's love is uniting us. And so as we pray for service, all I could think of is this one verse, and I know you already know where it comes from, so I'm going to read it. And then pray. For God so loved the world. He loved this world in all of its anxiety, all of its uncertainty. This one, this exact one as it is today, he loves it. And so he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray for our world. We pray for the anxious, not knowing what tomorrow will bring. We pray for the fearful, who have already lost so much. We pray for those who are sick, that have lost all hope. Father, will you have compassion on them, and compassion on all of us, that we may receive your loving gifts of grace, mercy, and truth. You are the Father of lights, and every good and perfect gift comes from you. So help us to be still, and, to be ref- and refresh us with the, under- with the quiet streams of your promise for eternity. For we long to know again the peace that surpasses all understanding and the love that is everlasting. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, Christ Community Church. It has been a while since I've been able to address you in a teaching capacity on a Sunday morning. I want you to know that I have missed you terribly and that uh, that is especially true now that we are all under a stay-at-home order. I also want you to know that our pastors have been working hard. They've been faithful and diligent, bringing you God's word. Um, And I am so thankful for their spirit of cheerful service. I can't thank them enough in this crisis. And so uh, we are also looking forward to the day when we can see your, your smiling faces in public and actually shake your hands without the fear of passing or contracting a global virus. So in the meantime, this format will, will be our new reality for a while. What I thought I would do with my limited voice this morning is just read the passage and then let the guys take it from there. It's in John 19, 31 through 42. It says, since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken so that their bodies be taken away. Uh, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other one who was being crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. He says, For these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And also... Uh, Another scripture says they will look on the one whom they have pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, uh, he asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. This is curious. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body away. 
and then Nicodemus, who had previously, previously uh, visited him at night, also came bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. And they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in, in cloths with the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. And there was a garden in the place where he, had, he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden, and no one had yet been placed in it. And so they placed Jesus there there because of the Jewish day of preparation uh, and because the, the tomb was nearby. The passage, when you read it, seems very dire. But in God's way of doing things, the tragedy of death always comes before the miracle of resurrection. The reality of suffering always precedes the hope of healing and relief. The scene repeats itself a thousand times in America every day. Folding chairs under a canopy on a well-kept lawn. Well-dressed mourners. Somber. Reverent. And attentive. Tissues and tears and calming words over a casket. And then the mourners, one by one, they leave. And the dirt flies. And the life that was is no more. We are especially reminded of that poignant scene given our current crisis in the nation today. You and I have a very fixed image, a cultural image of the finality of human life from our perspective, but the Jews had a very different image and a reality when it comes to the subject than you and I do. Based on a passage out of Deuteronomy, uh, the Jews believed that to have Jewish men hanging on trees or crosses waiting to die prolonged and agonizing deaths during the Sabbath and especially during the Passover Sabbath, that brought defilement upon the nation. Their view was conditioned by their Old Testament upbringing and the worldview the Old Testament taught them. It was also conditioned by their experience. To put it mildly, death was all around them. The mortality rate was very high due to unchecked disease. Their doctors could do little more than bandage wounds or prescribe some herbal remedies to soothe pain. Most of their medicinal aids or cures were ridiculous by today's standards. They didn't have cures, they didn't have miracle vaccines, and they didn't have therapies for anything. And now the one man, the great physician, who could actually heal their bodies with a word or raise the dead with just a touch, the person whom they put their hopes in, their hopes in the teacher from Nazareth, seem dashed, destroyed by the unbearable finality of his death and the manner of his passing, which is so scandalous. Death by crucifixion. There are two big ideas that I want to draw out of this text. I'm so thankful for Pastor Jeff setting it up so well uh, with the background of it. But before we get to those two big ideas, we need to remember what we've seen so far. Uh, these past few chapters have been a little difficult for us. We've seen the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. We've seen his crucifixion and the torture, and now we're going to see his death and burial. And John is making it clear in the midst of all of these things, two repeated things come out from this. And the first is that Jesus is still in control. I preached on this a few weeks ago, and Pastor Daniel hit on it as well as Pastor Patrick. In the midst of all of these things that seem as if Satan is winning, they seem as if uh, Jesus is losing, so to speak, within all of it, Jesus is still in complete control. John even reminds us of this. If you have your Bibles, you can look at the preceding verse, John chapter 19, 
verse 30, when he says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. In that last act of solidarity with the Father, he himself gave up his spirit. So we need to be reminded that Jesus is still in control, but also reminded at the reason that John is writing all of this. As Pastor Jeff read it, let me draw your eyes back to verse 35. John writes, he who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. For the betrayal and the arrest and the crucifixion and now his death, all of this is to boost our faith, is to grow our faith so that we might believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that he came and took our place and died for our sins. So two truths from this passage that I wanna draw our hearts to this morning. And the first is this, Jesus' death was a necessity. Jesus' death was a necessity. When you read this passage, it's clear. It seems like just some background information because in a sense it is. It's coming right before chapter 20 and what's gonna set up the resurrection for us in a couple of weeks. So it seems like some side remarks from John. But what he's actually doing here is making, making it very clear one, one specific point, and it's that Jesus really died. His death is a historical reality. It literally happened. It's, it's an important part of our faith to comprehend because if he didn't die, then the resurrection really has no significance for us. But John is painting this picture to show that Jesus really did die, and his death was a necessity. As Pastor Jeff said in his introduction, uh, during that day and age, death was so common. They didn't have the medical advancements that we do today. It was surrounding them at every age of life. And so today, we can be even more averse to death, and rightfully so. We realize that in creation, death was not a part of God's intended plan. It was not a part of how we were supposed to live on this earth. So there's something rightfully wrong about it. But we must come to realize and recognize and understand that this particular death, the death of Jesus Christ, had to take place. It had to take place. And why do I say that? I think two reasons stand out from the, from the scriptures. And the first is because of sin and our separation from God. Because of sin and our separation from God. When you read the storyline of scripture, a few things stand out. As you read from creation and then to the fall and then to God delivering his people uh, from Egypt in the Exodus and then taking them into the promised land, helping them to establish their territory, even providing them as a king because they wanted to be like the surrounding nations and then they are sent to exile. When you read this entire storyline before Jesus comes, one thing makes it clear. God pursues a wayward people. And the reality is, as we examine our own lives, we are that wayward people. We are prone to wander, prone to turning our backs to God. In our sin, we have rebelled against our king and we deserve his righteous judgment. But praise God, the story doesn't end at the end of the Old Testament. As we've been uncovering in John, he sent somebody. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be our sacrifice and to come and take the just punishment that we deserved. So this death was a necessity. It had to take place because of our sin and our separation. Jesus restores us back to the Father. But secondly, this was a part of God's intended plan from the beginning. The intended plan to rescue his people comes through the sacrifice of his son. This plan that is grounded 
in love for us, a plan that shows the heart of a gracious father in pursuing his wayward children. This plan that drives us to our knees in humility and gratitude. Because when we truly come to understand what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, when we truly come to see with spiritual eyes and understand with new minds and are given new hearts that are no longer dead but are now living and active, when we truly comprehend this, then we of all people are overcome with gratitude, overcome with humility because we, as we examine ourselves, we know that we did not deserve this grace. We did not deserve it. But the truth of it is that while we were still sinners, still sinning, Christ died for us. And that's the good news of the gospel. So we must come to recognize that this death, this particular death was a necessity for us. But secondly, we no longer fear death. We no longer fear death. Now, admittedly, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. I'm slightly cheating. I'm not particularly sticking to this passage because I cannot preach on the death and burial of Jesus without at least referencing what's going to come in chapter 20 with the resurrection. This is not where the story ends. We know that our Lord was raised. And in so doing, he gives us the confidence that we no longer fear death. In his death, he has secured for us eternal life. As I said a few weeks ago in my sermon, come what may, and this, these words are even more poignant now, come what may in this world. And many of you are suffering right now. Many of you are filled with anxiety and fear because you don't know what is going to come. Our world has been turned upside down, so to speak. Many of you are wondering about jobs or how are you going to take care of aging parents or even your own uh, specific children. What is going to happen in these coming weeks? We do not know. But one thing we do know is that our Lord reigns, and he's still reigning today and forevermore. So no matter what happens in this life, we of all people do not lose hope because we no longer fear death. If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip over real quick to Hebrews chapter 2. It should be on the screen for you. Hebrews chapter 2, I want to read two verses I want to read how the author of Hebrews interprets the death of Jesus for us. One of the earliest Christian documents we have, he interprets the death of Jesus, chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He writes, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. He took on a human nature, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. He has conquered Satan. In verse 15, And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Did you catch that in verse 15? He frees those who were held in slavery by the fear of death. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we no longer fear death, brothers and sisters, because we of all people have an eternal hope that cannot be taken from us. We know God now, as the scriptures say, and when you know God, you have eternal life. He conquered death for us. Jesus is the death conqueror. It reminds me of what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter one. He says, for me to to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, if I keep living, he's suffering, he's in prison. If I keep living, then I'm gonna live for Christ. I'm gonna proclaim the kingdom until I die. I'm gonna keep making disciples. But if I do die, then it's all gain because then we are ushered into the eternal presence of our Lord. 
And it's this hope that we need in the midst of these trying times. We need to be reminded that we of all people never lose our hope because we have an eternal life to look forward to with our God. So we have to understand the necessity of Jesus' death in order to fully grasp what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. And in understanding this, may we be encouraged as the children of God, as God's adopted sons and daughters, that we of all people do not fear death. We do not lose hope. May that encourage your hearts this morning. Thanks, brother. It's fascinating to jump ahead to the cross, the resurrection, even though we're studying death. We certainly do live in a time and age where our society, is, as Jeff kind of mentioned, has suppressed death and the effects and the idea of it. But it's not gone. The fear of it still exists. I, I see it each time there's a funeral in this room when the pastors are here. and Pastor Rick gives this awesome message about death. I always leave actually encouraged because the Lord has victory over it. And so not thinking of death isn't a solution to it. And for us as believers, if, if we don't understand the concept of death and why Christ had to be buried, we miss out on the opportunity of the glory that's revealed in Christ overcoming death. And so we need to look at his death and burial as our own. One of the amazing things that I want to put picture and have us recognize is that what Christ endured, we have joined so first, we go back to the setting of Jesus being on the cross. It would have been unusual for him to even come off the cross. Jeff made mention of that in his video. Especially a rebel, an insurrectionist, would not be taken off the cross. Rome would leave him up there, even after death, for a number of days for his body to be pecked at by vultures as a way to further humiliate the ones who were rebelling. To remind them all that rebellion against Rome is futile. And so the fact that Pilate hands Jesus' body over to Nicodemus and Joseph is a unique concept. But these two men, they're described as secret disciples. They went to Pilate, asked for his body, and I think Pilate probably gives him up because as we looked before, Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, but was too weak to do anything about it. And these two men, Joseph, who was a rich member of the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus, who we met back in John chapter 3, was a teacher of Israel, they step out of the shadows they step out of darkness and align their life with Christ. They now join Christ even after his death. Look what was described about this whole category of people, secret disciples back in John chapter 12, verses 42 through 43. It says, nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. A number of people saw Jesus, wanted to believe in him, but there were these cultural barriers that kept them from believing, from leaving everything of their old way of life and embracing Jesus's. But what's unique about this is these two men do it not before his death, but after, after he suffered the penalty of death on the cross. And here's what I want to do. I want to be a little interactive with us sitting at home. You have the opportunity to hit pause and think about questions. And so we may be incorporating this. So this is a little trial run. But I want to ask you this question. Why would Nick and Joe risk their lives after Jesus' death? And so what I want you to do, I want you to pause. I want you to answer that question. You can write it in the chat, interact with one another, and just come think through why after Jesus' death. Wouldn't this be the end of the movement if Jesus died why would they step out? So go ahead, pause right now, discuss with your family, and then hit unpause, and we'll, we'll keep going.
Okay, so what did you think? Why would they step out? What not the movement dead? Why would they risk everything that they have accumulated in life to identify with Jesus and align their life with him? If you look at the synoptics, there's some other things that took place at the death of Christ. When he gave up his spirit, the sky darkened. The, the ground shook. And the veil was torn from top to bottom in the temple. These men had saw the truth in Jesus, believed in their heart, but did not profess with their mouth or with their life. And in that moment, in the hour of injustice that Christ endured on the cross and the suffering he endured before it, they no longer could keep silent. They could no longer sit on the sidelines. So regardless of the ridicule or further persecution, these men decided to join Jesus, even if it meant their own death. And they, so they took the bloodied and bruised body down from the cross and began to treat him like a king. If he, did, if he wasn't treated like a king when he was alive, these men began to treat Christ as a king in his death. Nick brings 75 pounds of myrrh, or to give you some context on that, that's the equivalent weight of nine gallons of milk, of oil to pour over Jesus' body. This is a royal burial. A common criminal would have just been thrown in an unmarked grave, but Christ's injustice is now over, and his glory is breaking through. And he's buried in a new tomb, somewhere in a tomb that no one else had been buried in, as a king would, and in a, in a fancy estate. But Christ's death was a defining moment of these men's lives. They stepped out of the shadows, out of darkness, out of ignorance, out of misunderstanding, and align their life with Jesus. But you know what? It's not just their defining moment in their life. It's our life too as believers. Look at how the Apostle Paul wants us to view Christ's death and his burial. This is what he says in Romans 6, 4 through 5. It says, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, that in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we may walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly be also in the likeness of his resurrection. This burial is our burial, brothers and sisters. As Christ was laid in the grave, as he was wrapped with linen and placed inside, that's ours as believers. That is the death we no longer need to fear. Because as Ryan has already said, there is a resurrection coming. In a few verses, he will no longer be there. We no longer need to fear death because one has already died for us. And where was he buried? In a tomb that was not his. He was hung on a cross that wasn't meant for him and buried in a tomb that was not planned for him. But nonetheless, he was laid in that tomb. It's called the borrowed tomb. Christ only borrowed it. He's not there. His body was, was wrapped and treated as if it was never going to, uh, uh, life was never going to fill his lungs again. All the anticipation, even amongst these secret disciples who are now stepping out, no one expected Jesus to be raised from the dead. But that's not for a lack of evidence. That's not for a, a lack of uh, uh, of evidence that Jesus pointed the contrary, but merely a lack of understanding by the people in the story. Throughout the gospel, Jesus has led his disciples to view the world through his miracles and his words, and until now they've been blinded. And so is, is there any indication that the present reality will end? In their case, no. They act as if there is no indication that anything will be different or changed. 
But the question is still true for you and I, even in this day, in this season of isolation, of separation from one another. Is there any indication that this will end? Or are we constantly living in the mere present, thinking that this is our lot in life? I don't think so. And so I want to ask you another question. I encourage you to pause and discuss with your family. Type in the chat. Think about this question. What evidence has the Lord given to us of a better future? What evidence has the Lord given to us about a better future? Think about that right now. We could, we could certainly talk. I can think about normally in our normal days and practices. Every Sunday would be a reminder that there is a present future that is coming that is better than what is. The fact that we get to gather and sing, but that's been taken away from us. So what has he given us as a reminder? I'm sure you can think of a lot of different things, whether testimony is word, but specifically from this passage, there are two things he's given us as a reminder of a better future. The first thing, look at the cross behind me. You may not see it, but you can see crosses in and throughout your home. Is Jesus still on the cross? No. And this isn't to anyone who has a picture of Jesus or or an image of Jesus still on the cross. I, I won't put that up in my house simply because he's not there. I need the constant reminder that death has been defeated, that that ongoing humiliation ended. He was taken off the cross. And I identify with that. But the second thing is that his tomb did not have his name on it. Like him, he was buried in a borrowed tomb, but brothers and sisters, you and I will also be buried in a borrowed tomb. There is a day that is coming that of our physical death will be undone and will be remade new, in a new heavens and a new earth, just as Christ was. The present reality will not be it forever. There is a future reality of hope where the saints will be gathered and praise the name of the Lord forever and ever. I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for the day when everybody's back in this room singing and praising. I love looking at empty chairs and four other people, but I would rather see all of your faces and your laughter and your smiles and your embrace. That day is coming, brothers and sisters, because Christ was buried, but he rose again from the dead in newness of life. And as Paul is saying to us, that too is our resurrection. That is our life and that is our hope. And so wherever we may be sitting, however we may be sitting, 20 days from now, it will be certainly different than today. It may feel worse, it may feel heavier, but I pray in the back of your mind as you lay down on your pillow to sleep at night that there is a hope that because he was buried, so too was I. And everything that was left in the grave did not come back up out of it. Brothers and sisters, we love you. We miss you. And in God's good timing, we will enjoy one another again. Until that day comes, remember Christ's great hope that he has conquered the grave and there is victory over death. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you've given us. And it is not in your design that we are separated. It is not in your design that your son was to go to the cross. But nonetheless, it is part of your plan to bring about your glory. For out of a borrowed tomb, glory shown to the world And continuing to this day, Father, you have blessed us richly. And so we ask for a blessing upon the families, upon the the individuals, upon this country, upon this nation, Father, that you operate in such a way that you reveal your glory and that you instill in us a great hope to unite again, 
that there is a blessed future promised for all of us. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, have a wonderful day in the Lord. If there is any great need that you have, we want to help meet it in the Lord. Go in the grace and peace of God today.